Chapter Twenty Eight of Clotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clotel by William Wells Brown. Chapter Twenty Eight: The Happy Meeting. Man's love is of a man's life a thing apart. Tis woman's whole existence. Byron. The clock on a neighboring church had scarcely ceased striking three when the servant announced that a carriage had called for Mr. Green. In less than half an hour he was seated in a most sumptuous barouche, drawn by two beautiful iron greys, and rolling along over a splendid gravel road completely shaded by large trees, which appeared to have been the accumulating growth of many centuries. The carriage soon stopped in front of a low villa, and this too was embedded in magnificent trees covered with moss. Mr. Green alighted and was shown into a superb drawing-room, the walls of which were hung with fine specimens from the hands of the great Italian painters, and one by a German artist representing a beautiful monkish legend connected with the Holy Catherine, an illustrious lady of Alexandria. The furniture had an antique and dignified appearance. High-backed chairs stood round the room, a venerable mirror stood on the mantel-shelf. Rich curtains of crimson damask hung in folds at either side of the large windows, and a rich turkey carpet covered the floor. In the center stood a table covered with books, in the midst of which was an old-fashioned vase filled with fresh flowers, whose fragrance was exceedingly pleasant. A faint light, together with the quietness of the hour, gave beauty beyond description to the whole scene. Mr. Green had scarcely seated himself upon the sofa, when the elderly gentleman, whom he had met the previous evening, made his appearance, followed by the little boy, and introduced himself as Mr. Devenant. A moment more, and a lady, a beautiful brunette, dressed in black, with long curls of a chestnut color hanging down her cheeks, entered the room. Her eyes were of a dark hazel, and her whole appearance indicated that she was a native of a southern clime. The door at which she entered was opposite to where the two gentlemen were seated. They immediately rose, and Mr. Devenant was in the act of introducing her to Mr. Green, when he observed that the latter had sunk back upon the sofa and the last word that he remembered to have heard was, "'It is her.' After this all was dark and dreamy. How long he remained in this condition it was for another to tell. When he awoke he found himself stretched upon the sofa, with his boots off, his neckerchief removed, shirt-collar unbuttoned, and his head resting upon a pillow. By his side sat the old man with the smelling bottle in one hand, and a glass of water in the other, and the little boy standing at the foot of the sofa. As soon as Mr. Green had so far recovered as to be able to speak, he said, "'Where am I, and what does this mean?' "'Wait a while,' replied the old man, "'and I will tell you all.' After a lapse of some ten minutes, he arose from the sofa, adjusted his apparel, and said, "'I am now ready to hear anything you have to say.' "'You were born in America?' said the old man. "'Yes,' he replied. "'And you were acquainted with a girl named Mary,' continued the old man, Yes, and I loved her as I can love none other. The lady whom you met so mysteriously last evening is Mary, replied Devenant. George Green was silent, but the fountains of mingled grief and joy stole out from beneath his eyelashes, and glistened like pearls upon his pale and marble-like cheeks. At this juncture the lady again entered the room. Mr. Green sprang from the sofa, and they fell into each other's arms to the surprise of the old man and little George, and to the amusement of the servants, who had crept up one by one, and were hid behind the doors, or loitering in the hall. When they had given vent to their feelings, they resumed their seats, and each in turn related the adventures through which they had passed. "'How did you find out my name and address?' 
asked Mr. Green. After you had left us in the graveyard, our little George said, Oh, Mama, if there ain't a book, and picked it up and brought it to us. Papa opened it and said, The gentleman's name is written in it, and here is a card of the Hotel de Leon, where I suppose he is stopping. Papa wished to leave the book and said it was all a fancy of mine that I had ever seen you before, but I was perfectly convinced that you were my own George Green. Are you married? No, I am not. Then thank God, exclaimed Mrs. Devenant. And are you single now? inquired Mr. Green. Yes, she replied. This is indeed the Lord's doing, said Mr. Green, at the same time bursting into a flood of tears. Mr. Devenant was past age when men should think upon matrimonial subjects, yet the scene brought vividly before his eyes the days when he was a young man and had a wife living. After a short interview, the old man called their attention to the dinner which was then waiting. We need scarcely add that Mr. Green and Mrs. Devenant did very little towards diminishing the dinner that day. After dinner the lovers, for such we have to call them, gave their experience from the time that George left the jail dressed in Mary's clothes. Up to that time Mr. Green's was substantially as we have related it. Mrs. Devenant's was as follows. The night after you left the prison, said she, I did not shut my eyes and sleep. The next morning, about eight o'clock, Peter the gardener came to the jail to see if I had been there the night before, and was informed that I had, and that I had left a little after dark. About an hour after, Mr. Green came himself, and I need not say that he was much surprised on finding me there, dressed in your clothes. This was the first tidings they had of your escape. What did Mr. Green say when he found that I had fled? Oh, continued Mrs. Devenant, he said to me when no one was near, I hope George will get off, but I fear you will have to suffer in his stead. I told him that if it must be so, I was willing to die if you could live. At this moment, George Green burst into tears, threw his arms around her neck, and exclaimed, I am glad I have waited so long with the hope of meeting you again. Mrs. Devenant again resumed her story. I was kept in jail three days, during which time I was visited by the magistrates and two of the judges. On the third day I was taken out, and Master told me that I was liberated, upon condition that I should be immediately sent out of the state. There happened to be, just at that time in the neighborhood, a negro trader, and he purchased me and I was taken to New Orleans. On the steamboat we were kept in a close room, where slaves are usually confined, so that I saw nothing of the passengers on board or the towns we passed. We arrived at New Orleans and were all put into the slave market for sale. I was examined by many persons, but none seemed willing to purchase me, as all thought me too white, and said I would run away and pass as a free white woman. On the second day, while in the slave market, and while the planters and others were examining slaves and making their purchases, I observed a tall young man with long black hair eyeing me very closely, and then talking to the trader. I felt sure that my time had now come, but the day closed without my being sold. I did not regret this, for I had heard that foreigners made the worst of masters, and I felt confident that the man who eyed me so closely was not an American. The next day was the Sabbath. The bells called the people to the different places of worship. Methodists sang, Baptists immersed, and Presbyterians sprinkled, and Episcopalians read their prayers, while the ministers of the various sects preached that Christ died for all. Yet there were some twenty-five or thirty of us poor creatures confined in the negro pen, awaiting the close of the Holy Sabbath and the dawn of another day, to be again taken into the market, there to be examined like so many beasts of burden. I need not tell you with what anxiety we waited for the advent of another day. On Monday we were again brought out and placed in rows to be inspected, 
and fortunately for me I was sold before we had been on the stand an hour. I was purchased by a gentleman residing in the city for a waiting-maid for his wife, who was just on the eve of starting for Mobile to pay a visit to a near relation. I was then dressed to suit the situation of a maid-servant, and upon the whole I thought that, in my new dress, I looked as much the lady as my mistress. On the passage to Mobile, who should I see among the passengers but the tall, long-haired man that had eyed me so closely in the slave-market a few days before? His eyes were again on me, and he appeared anxious to speak to me, and I as reluctant to be spoken to. The first evening, after leaving New Orleans, soon after twilight had let her curtain down and pinned it with a star, and while I was seated on the deck of the boat near the ladies' cabin, looking upon the rippled waves and the reflection of the moon upon the sea, all at once I saw the tall young man standing by my side. I immediately rose from my seat, and was in the act of returning to the cabin, when he, in a broken accent, said, "'Stop a moment. I wish to have a word with you. I am your friend.' I stopped and looked him full in the face, and he said, "'I saw you some days since in the slave-market, and I intended to have purchased you to save you from the condition of a slave. I called on Monday, but you had been sold and had left the market. I inquired and learned who your purchaser was, and that you had to go to Mobile, so I resolved to follow you. If you are willing, I will try and buy you from your present owner, and you shall be free.' Although this was said in an honest and off-hand manner, I could not believe the man to be sincere in what he said. "'Why should you wish to set me free?' I asked. "'I had an only sister,' he replied, "'who died three years ago in France, "'and you are so much like her, "'that had I not known of her death, "'I would most certainly have taken you for her. "'However much I may resemble your sister, "'you are aware that I am not her, "'and why take so much interest in one "'whom you never saw before?' "'The love,' said he, which I had for my sister is transferred to you. I had all along suspected that the man was a knave, and this profession of love confirmed me in my former belief, and I turned away and left him. The next day, while standing in the cabin and looking through the window, the French gentleman, for such he was, came to the window while walking on the guards, and again commenced, as on the previous evening. He took from his pocket a bit of paper and put it into my hand, at the same time saying, Take this. It may some day be of service to you. Remember, it is from a friend. And left me instantly. I unfolded the paper and found it to be a one hundred dollars banknote on the United States Branch Bank at Philadelphia. My first impulse was to give it to my mistress, but upon a second thought, I resolved to seek an opportunity and to return the hundred dollars to the stranger. Therefore I looked for him, but in vain, and had almost given up the idea of seeing him again when he passed me on the guards of the boat, and walked towards the stem of the vessel. It being now dark, I approached him, and offered the money to him. He declined, saying at the same time, I gave it to you, keep it. I do not want it, I said. Now, said he, you had better give your consent for me to purchase you, and you shall go with me to France. But you cannot buy me now, I replied, for my master is in New Orleans, and he purchased me not to sell, but to retain in his own family. "'Would you rather remain with your present mistress than be free?' "'No,' said I. "'Then fly with me to-night. "'We shall be in Mobile in two hours from this, "'and when the passengers are going on shore, "'you can take my arm, and you can escape unobserved. "'The trader who brought you to New Orleans "'exhibited to me a certificate of your good character, "'and one from the minister of your church "'to which you were attached in Virginia. "'And upon the faith of these assurances, "'and the love I bear you, "'I promise before high heaven, 
that I will marry you as soon as it can be done. This solemn promise, coupled with what had already transpired, gave me confidence in the man, and rash as the act may seem, I determined in an instant to go with him. My mistress had been put under the charge of the captain, and as it would be past ten o'clock when the steamer would land, she accepted an invitation of the captain to remain on board with several other ladies till morning. I dressed myself in my best clothes, and put a veil over my face, and was ready on the landing of the boat. Surrounded by a number of passengers, we descended the stage leading to the wharf, and were soon lost in the crowd that thronged the quay. As we went on shore, we encountered several persons announcing the names of hotels, the starting of boats for the interior, and vessels bound for Europe. Among these was the ship Utica, Captain Pell, bound for Havre. Now, said Mr. Devenant, this is our chance. The ship was to sail at twelve o'clock that night at high tide, and following the men who were seeking passengers, we went immediately on board. Devenant told the captain of the ship that I was his sister, and for such we passed during the voyage. At the hour of twelve the Utica set sail, and we were soon out at sea. The morning after we left Mobile, Devenant met me as I came from my stateroom, and embraced me for the first time. I loved him, but it was only that affection which we have for one who has done us a lasting favor. It was the love of gratitude rather than that of the heart. We were five weeks on the sea, and yet the passage did not seem long, for Devenant was so kind. On our arrival at Havre, we were married and came to Dunkirk, and I have resided here ever since. At the close of this narrative the clock struck ten, when the old man, who was accustomed to retire at an early hour, rose to take leave, saying at this time, "'I hope you will remain with us to-night.' Mr. Grain would fain have excused himself, on the ground that they would expect him and wait at the hotel, but a look from the lady told him to accept the invitation. The old man was the father of Mrs. Devenant's deceased husband, as you will no doubt long since have supposed. A fortnight from the day on which they met in the graveyard, Mr. Green and Mrs. Devenant were joined in holy wedlock, so that George and Mary, who had loved each other so ardently in their younger days, were now husband and wife. A celebrated writer has justly said of woman, A woman's whole life is a history of the affections. The heart is her world. It is there her ambition strives for empire. It is there her avarice seeks for hidden treasures. She sends forth her sympathies on adventure. She embarks her whole soul in the traffic of affection. And if shipwrecked, her case is hopeless, for it is a bankruptcy of the heart. Mary had every reason to believe that she would never see George again, and although she confesses that the love she bore him was never transferred to her first husband, we can scarcely find fault with her for marrying Mr. Devenant. But the adherence of George Green to the resolution never to marry unless to his Mary is indeed a rare instance of the fidelity of man in the matter of love. We can but blush for our country's shame when we recall to mind the fact that while George and Mary Green, and numbers of other fugitives from American slavery, can receive protection from any of the governments of Europe, they cannot return to their native land without becoming slaves. Conclusion My narrative has now come to a close. I may be asked, and no doubt shall, are the various incidents and scenes related founded in truth? I answer yes. I have personally participated in many of those scenes, some of the narratives I have derived from other sources, many from the lips of those who, like myself, have run away from the land of bondage. 
Having been nearly nine years employed on Lake Erie, I had many opportunities for helping the escape of fugitives, who in return for the assistance they received, made me the depository of their sufferings and wrongs. Of their relations I have made free use. To Mrs. Child, of New York, I am indebted for part of a short story. American abolitionist journals are another source from whence some of the characters appearing in my narrative are taken. All of these combined have made up my story. Having thus acknowledged my resources, I invite the attention of my readers to the following statement, from which I leave them to draw their own conclusions. It is estimated that in the United States, members of the Methodist Church own 219,363 slaves. Members of the Baptist Church own 226,000 slaves. Members of the Episcopalian Church own 88,000 slaves. Members of the Presbyterian Church own 77,000 slaves. Members of all other churches own 50,000 slaves. In all, 660,563 slaves owned by members of the Christian Church in this pious democratic republic. May these facts be pondered over by British Christians, and at the next anniversaries of the various religious denominations in London, may their influence be seen and felt. The religious bodies of American Christians will send their delegates to these meetings. Let British feelings be publicly manifested. Let British sympathy express itself in tender sorrow for the condition of my unhappy race. Let it be understood, unequivocally understood, that no fellowship can be held with slaveholders professing the same common Christianity as yourselves. And until this stain from America's otherwise fair escutcheon be wiped away, let no Christian association be maintained with those who traffic in the blood and bones of those whom God has made of one flesh as ourselves. Finally, let the voice of the whole British nation be heard across the Atlantic, and throughout the length and breadth of the land of the Pilgrim Fathers, beseeching their descendants as they value the common salvation, which knows no distinction between the bond and the free, to proclaim the year of Jubilee. Then shall the earth indeed yield her increase, and God, even our own God, shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. End of Clotel by William Wells Brown